That song is very consistent with what we read a while ago in the uh, responsive reading. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. What a wonderful song. Thank you, Allegiance, so much. Now, already in our responsive reading, we have read from Psalm 86, uh, 6 through 12. And now we're going to be reading uh, before the message, uh, verses 1 through 5 and then 13 through the rest of the chapter. We are starting a series, today is the first, of looking at the Psalms. And the reality of what is our relationship with God really like. And the Psalms just show us so much about the um, what's actually going on in our relationship with him. And today, we're going to talk about the um, ambivalence and ambiguity in that relationship. So would you please stand as we read from Psalm 86. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Verse 13. For delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek, seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Let's always remember that the power resides in God's word. Thank you. And you may be seated. Ambivalence has uh, different meanings to different people, but let's see what the dictionary says. Uh, Simultaneous and contradictory attitudes and feelings towards something or someone. Simultaneously conflicted. You have contrary feelings or attitudes toward the very same thing or someone, I have to confess to you that there are times that I am conflicted, especially when I'm going through difficult times in my season and in seasons of life, when things are not going well. On one hand, I'm emotionally affected negatively by troubling circumstances. But at the same time, I know that God is my refuge and strength, my ever-present help in times of trouble. 
You see, the experience of suffering sometimes conflicts with my knowledge that God knows what's best for me and that I am 100% under his watch care. There are times that my emotions seem counter to my faith. I, yet, I am confident of God's gracious providence. Perhaps you have felt like Tevye in The Fiddler on the Roof. He talks to God a lot during the musical, so if you haven't seen it, you, it's really a, a good movie. So he says this, Sometimes I wonder, when it gets too quiet up there, if you're thinking, what kind of mischief can I play with my friend Tevye? Now, it, it may sound like I'm complaining, but I'm not. After all, with your help, I'm starving to death. <laughs> oh, dear Lord, you made so many, many poor people. And I realize, of course, it's not a, a shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. <laughs> so would it be so terrible if I had just a small fortune? I know, I know. We're your chosen people. But once in a while, couldn't you choose someone else? (laughs) Am I bothering you too much? I'm sorry. As the good book says. Oh, why should I tell you what the good book says? Well, part of what we're reading today is from the good book. In this psalm, we see ambivalence in David's attitude and in his demeanor and his feelings and his soul. We see a heartfelt cry of a man of God who is desperate, and yet he holds fast to the God that he knows. You see, great needs drive most of us to God, yet there are times, and we maybe this has happened to you, maybe it's happened to a family member or a friend, where great difficulties and problems actually drive people away from this loving God who is there for us. Many times this is due to the amount of pain that they experience And they're overwhelming challenges and they simply lose faith for a while. But I would like to contrast childlike faith from childish faith. To some degree, our faith is childlike faith. In fact, we have examples that Jesus brings a child and says, do you have this much faith? But what happens to childlike faith when adult issues come beating down our doors? So many times, the naive idea that God is supposed to keep bad things from happening to us falls apart when the big issues come in our lives and it destroys the things that we love. 
You see, I happen to believe that we can maintain a childlike faith while not remaining childish in our faith. I believe the Bible teaches us that as we grow older in Christ, our childlike faith must grow roots that are deep so that when the storms come, we still stand. Karl Barth was a great Christ-centered theologian of the 20th century. He got criticized from the theological left. He got criticized from the theological right. He wrote Church Dogmatics, which is a 14-volume opus, magnus opus. He published it in stages from 1932 to 1967. It's regarded one of the most important theological works of the 20th century, and it contains over six million words. Bard explored the whole of Christian doctrine, and he presented it entirely in light of Jesus Christ. He was Christocentric, 14 volumes. He presented Jesus Christ as the unique and complete Word of God made flesh. When he was on a tour in 1962, he went to the University of Chicago. And after his lecture and during a question and answer time, a student asked him this question. Can you summarize your whole life's work of theology in a sentence? And Bart said, well, yes, I can. It's in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You see, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, can be understood at different levels, different stages of life, academically, intellectually. That statement is a childlike statement, but believe me, Karl Barth was no childish thinker. It may be a childish nursery rhyme because we've really never grown in our faith. Nothing's really happened to you since you were a kid as far as spiritual growth is concerned. And while you've remained immature in your belief and your faith, painful adult experiences have crushed you. And there were no deep roots of faith to help you. Has your childlike faith remained childish? Or have they grown deep roots? Now, there are reasons why people don't cry out to God in times of trouble. Some people are just anxious people. They need to worry. It's part of their makeup. It makes them feel better to worry. And if you happen to go to God in faith, you may not worry anymore. So they continue to worry about the doomsday scenarios. And then there are the hurt and bitter people. 
They resist crying out to God because in times of trouble, God did not deliver them the way that he was supposed to, they thought. And they blame him for their present circumstances. And then there are those who cherish and cuddle their sins and rebellion. Maybe they just don't want to pray. Or maybe they want to, but they believe that they have sinned so greatly that God will not hear them. So why even try? And then there's the self-sufficient people. They can always figure everything out. They do all they can as if there is no God, and therefore they don't need to pray. John Bunyan once said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. And then there are others who have experienced just as many and varied and extremely painful moments in their life and maybe even years. And yet they find a deeper, more meaningful presence of God in their adult pain than when they were children. A childlike faith with deep roots can stand the storms of life. It is rooted in knowing God personally, not knowing about him, not being in a bunch of Bible studies with more knowledge, but truly knowing God, experiencing God, walking with God, trusting God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Next week, Adam is going to be preaching from Psalm 37. We've heard this and it's wonderful Verses 4 and 5, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. So you have something to look forward to next week. But what do we have here? We have a man who has been tested over a period of time by painful circumstances and encounters. And his roots are deep. But he still feels the anguish of the moment and of the circumstances. God described David as a man after his own heart. He says it in the Old Testament, but in Acts 13, referring to God removing Saul from being king. He said, and he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found In David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And I know some of us immediately are going to Bathsheba and we're going to uh, his uh, general Ur. Listen, I want you to know something. David lived to be a ripe old age. And those events happened within months of each other. And we have a tendency to judge David by three or four or five months instead of a lifetime of pursuing God. You see, if God says that David had a heart after him, then I choose to believe him instead of harping on the negative. 
David begins this psalm by saying, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. David knew that he could not save himself, and if God did not save him, he would not be saved. And that drove him in desperation to the God that he knew. John Piper, in referring to evil and suffering in the world, the evil and suffering in this world are greater than any of us can comprehend. But evil and suffering are not ultimate. God is. Satan, the great lover of evil and suffering, is not sovereign. God is. I can't remember ever hearing a Christ follower say that they learned the deep lessons of uh, life when everything was going easy. But I've had the painful privilege of walking with some of you in this congregation who through suffering have a deeper walk than I will ever know. Your roots are much deeper than those who have gone through life with ease. When David said that he's a godly man, he's not referring to his own righteousness. This word godly comes from the a Hebrew word hesed, which means loving kindness, and it refers to God's covenantal love. And what he is saying is, not that I'm godly in and of myself, but I'm committed to the covenant that you have made for me. Therefore, I am devoted to you and your covenant. It's a sad thing to hear of people who cry out to stones and wood and precious metals and statues and other material objects for help. Some of you have been in those third world countries. David Platt, who's been president of our International Mission Board, has traveled extensively uh, extensively, uh, in the last conference that some of us went to, weeps over what he has seen in these countries and cultures through the years. He has been heartbroken witnessing tragedy of millions upon millions of people who sincerely believe that these idols are more than man-made objects of worship. And what David is saying in this psalm when he talks about there is God above all gods, he is referring to idols. Isaiah 45, 5 says this, I am the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. And what we read earlier in uh, our responsive reading, look at verses 8 and 10 uh, through 10. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. David emphasizes the absolute sovereign omnipotence of this God that he loves and that he's devoted to. I know I'll quote from Spurgeon and Piper and several others. I just love reading them because they're so encouraging. 
But I really love this point of view of history from John Piper. All of history is moving toward one great goal, the white-hot worship of God and his Son among the peoples of the earth. In verse 15, David says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Listen, if David can say that from an Old Testament context, how much more can we talk about the loving kindness and graciousness and mercy of God through Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus invites you to come to his throne of grace to find mercy when you need him. In case you're worried that your problems are too big or that you're bothering him, please understand that his loving kindness and graciousness is far greater than all the world's needs that come before his throne. You may think that you're not deserving Hey, you're in a great place because grace is only reserved for those undeserving. None of us are deserving. What do we see in this prayer? David prays earnestly. He cries out for God. He's not mumbling a formal liturgy. He's not mindlessly going through a prayer list. He's coming to God as a beggar with his hands out who needs only what God can give. Verse 3, for unto you I cry all day long. His prayer is continual, not as the Gentiles repeat, but all the way through the days and even in the nights. We pursue God. We long for him. We thirst for him. And what's amazing here is that he is in the midst of his very life struggle. Men are trying to kill him. And yet what does he say in verse 12? I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. Is it possible to be desperate and thankful at the same time? Well, if you've never experienced God's grace, probably not. But if you have a history and you have deep roots and you have gone through one trial after another, you can cry out to God in desperation and at the same time say, thank you for all that you have done in my life. His prayer is permeated with humility. He's the king. He gets to tell everybody what to do. But he doesn't tell God what to do. He falls on his face before God. Because he knows who the king of kings is. He admits his weakness. But all through this prayer, he has confidence and faith. Faith is not a leap in the darkness. 
It's resting in the light of his revelation to us in Jesus Christ. He prays for salvation. See, that's where it starts. We want all the benefits. We want the resurrected life. We want God to, to do everything for us. And yet we're not willing to go to the cross. And beg for his salvation. We beg not to turn his heart toward us, but because we see the great hunger for spiritual life. He has opened our hearts to some degree. Save me, because I need saving. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. And if you've never cried out to God like a drowning man crying for someone to save them. He is worthy and able and willing. Verse 11 really is one of my favorite verses in this. Teach me your way, O Lord. I walk in the truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. This is where ambivalence comes in. What David is asking is, unify my heart. I'm torn. I'm torn between the way I feel, my desperate need. I need you, but I know that you will meet all my needs. Unite my heart so that I am wholly devoted to you. The question that comes to my mind is, are we, as followers of Christ, wholly single-mindedly devoted to Jesus Christ who died for our sins? When we contemplate the cost of our salvation. When we meditate on the sufferings, his sinless life, and we remember that it's all for the forgiveness of our sins and the benefit of receiving Jesus Christ so that we can have eternal life with him. How can we be double-minded about such a great and loving God who made a way for us to have peace with Him. Perhaps you've never come to faith. Perhaps you've walked away. Would you look to Christ? I know that we are sometimes disappointed in our religious experiences and in life. I get that. And it just is so painful 
But either of those times will destroy us or it will grow our roots. Suffering is a part of this fallen world. And it's childish to think that we're going to be immune from it. One of the things that I remember about the day that I came to faith in Jesus Christ was a sense of peace that filled my heart. It was like someone lifted a heavy burden off of me. Though I had been in the ministry for years and I was already ordained and I was already serving in a church, on that day I met the crucified and risen Christ in that seminary classroom and the peace of God came and rescued me from my sincere religious devotion because I tried to find peace in religious devotion. Peace does not come because of what we are or who we are. Peace only comes from God through Jesus Christ our Lord who reconciles us to himself. If you're fighting with God, resisting his call, his love, his grace, and his purpose, then you will never experience this supernatural peace. This prayer of David helps us to be honest about our ambivalence how we feel and what we know. And it will be a step of faith for some of us to trust God again. But you know what I found in those who are struggling with coming back to faith? You're struggling because you want to. And you know you need to. But you fight. This is not in my notes, but you're obstinate. (laughs) What is your need today? Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. God is not so transcendent that he's just up there waiting. He came here and he suffered things that none of us will suffer. And he was, and he was tempted in every manner that you and I were and are and will And yet, he was without sin. You can come to him, for he sympathizes with your plight. How desperate are you? Are you so hurt that you can't trust him? Or do you just love your anxiety? Or are you so self-sufficient that you think that you can get along without him while professing that you do? He is near. 
and he is not far. He is transcendent and he's imminent, personal. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to, made, uh, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This verse really capsulizes Psalm 86. I know you may have doubts, and you may even have fears. But are you going to believe how you feel about yourself, or are you going to believe what God says about you? Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. If you're tired of the struggle, he makes a promise and even through the trials, though sometimes we think he has, he has not failed us. Would you pray with me? Father, ambivalence is real. Simultaneously and contradictory, we have feelings of anxiety and desperation while at the same time we know that you are near and that we can trust you. Father, would you help us this very morning to cast our cares upon you, for you care for us. Father, we even come to worship, perhaps even to relieve the anxiety. But it is not in worship that our anxiety is relieved. It's in us coming to you in faith, in our personal and quiet time and giving ourselves, responding, knowing that you are graceful and merciful and that you will answer us in our time of need, though it may not be the way that we want it. But, Father, you have given us the privilege of worship because you have proven yourself strong and ready and gracious and loving And we thank you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that you have brought us into your presence and that you receive us. So, Father, even as we close out this service, give us a heart of thanksgiving along with our earnest prayers. And we will worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.